Hi, and welcome to From Many People's Strength, the podcast that covers Saskatchewan politics and current events. My name is Corey, and my pronouns are he and him. And my name is David, and my pronouns are they, them, or he, him. My name is Kyle Anderson, and my pronouns are he, him. <laughs> so you might notice that we have a guest this time for the very first time on <laughs> our show. Um, uh, so I guess, uh, Kyle, you've kind of made uh, a public name now uh, because of your outspokenness on COVID in Saskatchewan. Uh, so how does it feel to be one of the head members of the No Funds Club? <laughs> you know, at first I was sort of offended that John Gormley would like <laughs> say that all the time and, you know, attack me and things like that. And then I started to realize that the reason that I get attacked by people on the right you know, hard conservatives, things like that, is that I'm effective at what I'm doing. And they're just threatened by the fact that I am putting a different narrative out there from the one that they're trying to put. So, you know, when, once I thought of it that way, I'm like, okay, well, it's a good thing then. Yeah. You're in good company. Right? Like <laughs> the, the people who John Gormley tends to uh, have in his crosshairs um, is often, uh, yeah, like I said, often good company. So, yeah, uh, he recently, uh, it's not part of our notes today, but he recently doxed somebody on his show uh, and uh, there was a quite a bit on Twitter about it um, uh, in the Saskatchewan Twitter. I don't know if anybody outside of Saskatchewan knows the difference, but it's, and it's, uh, it's a regular, uh, I don't know, it's a regular thing for him to just dox people that he disagrees with and like send his followers their addresses and stuff. So yeah, not cool. I think, he's really <laughs> I think he's really good at knowing where the line is for libel, slander, whatever sort of things he might get sued for. And he's he's always good at coaxing like this is an opinion or some people say this, but, you know, he's definitely, you know, the intent is there to damage people's reputations or to get people harassed by others. In my yeah. opinion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could do the entire thing. Just I'm just asking questions. Yeah. I'm not I'm not saying I'm not saying John Gormley did this, that, or the other. I'm just I'm just asking questions as to are people talking about what he's doing. Yeah, yeah that's right. I I'm not uh I don't have that that button, whatever it is that you have to avoid getting sued. <laughs> John Gormley is a reactionary. He is bad. <laughs> <laughs> You're just willing to come right out and say it. That's fine. I respect that. Yeah. So, uh, I guess a little bit about yourself. Like, uh, you, uh, you work at the university of Saskatchewan. Yeah. So I've been at the U of S since 2009. I started off just as a lecturer there. And then really at the same time that I started, the university started making tenure track, teaching professor positions. So when my department had a chance to hire one, they made an ad that essentially just matched my credentials because I'm an award-winning teacher, things like that. So I am I am now as of, uh, I guess, 2020, the actually the same day that the province went into lockdown was the day that I heard from the last level saying that I got tenure, oh, which wow. was an amazing time for me <laughs> to be able to sort of have a little bit of armor, a little bit of protection for whatever I wanted to say publicly, because I have academic freedom. I know that especially on, on things that are sort of COVID related, 
I can put those opinions out there and it is really just, it is my right, my academic freedom to be able to take a stance on things. Whereas people who might be working under SHA, doctors, nurses, you know, lab techs, things like that, they're definitely under the purview of the government directly or indirectly. And they could really, you know, face some kind of job action if they're too confrontational or too critical of what the government's doing. Yeah, kind of a, a, a muzzle, if you will. And while I'm in the College of Medicine, I'm in the biomedical sciences, which is like the basic sciences. So I have nothing to do with medicine at all, except for I guess some of my students would be pre-med students who go on into medicine. But, you know, I sort of feel like I'm the stepchild of a stepchild. I'm the teaching faculty in a research department who is doing stuff that's not medical in the College of Medicine. So it's <laughs> sort of a few steps away from any sort of doctor-like thing or physician-like thing. Still get called doctor because of the PhD. I suppose you earned that, though. <laughs> yeah. Many years. Of <laughs> so I guess, I guess one of the things that we will be covering some stories related to COVID, but uh, just what have you seen uh, and thought of the province's response to COVID throughout the pandemic? I want to sort of give a little bit of historical, like how I did become a public figure. I can say that it was in the summer of last year and I had been answering questions for friends, for family, that kind of stuff about COVID. Like how does sanitizer work? How could a mask actually work if the virus is smaller than, you know, the holes in the mask? And there was just a lot of things that people didn't know and they wanted to have some kind of expert opinion. And I was that expert opinion for people. And as I started to do, you know, the doom scrolling that probably a lot of people were doing, just reading various things, for me, it was also research. It was learning about not, you know, what's happening in the news, but what's happening within the science. And one of the things I came across was called pooled testing. And we had already sort of established in the province that our testing capacity wasn't going to be able to keep up if we actually did get a substantial wave. So I made a video just sort of explaining what pooled testing was. And from that, it went viral. I started getting more and more sort of news interviews. And what I really started to see was that because I was teaching from home, looking after my kids, but not out there like a doctor or nurse or lab tech would be, I was able to have the time to answer questions and actually explain things. And I really started to sort of go along that mindset of, you know, doctors who are saving lives shouldn't have to come home and then explain the science to people because the public needs to have that to try and prevent more cases. So I really sort of started to look at it as, you know, it's public service that I'm doing just because I've got the time. And then as things progressed and it was like, we should be masking by now, we should be, you know, limiting gatherings. And there were just so many incremental mistakes that we kept making where we were underestimating the virus. And over time, I also started to become very critical of the government, especially getting into the third wave when we had things like in January, there was really not very much attention paid to all the cases that were in the far north. So thinking about, you know, our government might not might not really consider the indigenous populations as a priority for health. And then once we were getting into March, I mean, really in February, I was explaining to people that because of the variants and because of the numbers going up in Regina, they were starting to get a variant surge. And it was actually four weeks before 
it was sort of, oh, there's a third wave in Regina. I had given a couple interviews in Regina saying like the numbers would sort of explain if they're getting this alpha wave or what was the UK variant at the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, trying to call for like, we need a circuit breaker. I actually, you know, did a little campaign that ended up getting a half million views on Twitter in 24 hours calling for a circuit breaker. And then the next day is when they limited restaurants and uh, church services in Regina. And, you know, somehow I managed to get influence, you know, (laughs) from someone who just had a Twitter account for over a decade who had 300 followers and now I've got (laughs) close to 8,000. So when did you start to feel the backlash? Because like, it seemed like, again, as an outside observer, In the early days, there was some sort of very fringe backlash to the science. But as this thing sort of built, um, anyone who sort of talked about science became a political target um, from, I don't want to say mainstream, but effectively mainstream political thought started targeting people who talked about the science. When did you start to really feel that? think that it was probably around February, March, because I mean, when I first had that viral video, I was interviewed by John Gormley on his show and there was no confrontational anything at the Mm. time. It was just another interview that I gave. And in December, I gave an interview that was talking about breaking, you know, various misinformation about COVID and things like that. And I knew that I was going to be targeted by the COVID denying groups but still the mainstream sort of people like there weren't that big fractions of like, okay, Kyle's like political now and everything he says is under this political lens. But as we got into the third wave and I think that people got frantic when things got bad, I got frantic when things were getting bad because every day I was looking at the testing, the positivity, the cases, and I could see things coming. So I started getting more vocal and just really a lot more critical of the government response because I knew what was coming. And then from that, people were like, okay, he's fear mongering, you know, everything's political with him. And I mean, I was right. (laughs) So, you know, know, I think that good was done from all of my speaking out, but definitely because I was getting ahead of the government messaging. I think that's when things sort of shifted to, John Gormley attacking me on his show. And, you know, I arranged a phone protest to call the premier's office. And the day before that, uh, the RCMP showed up at my door because I had made a tweet where there was a Game of Thrones meme. And the RCMP showed up at my door saying, you know, someone thinks you're actually making a threat against the premier's life. And when I did sort of call the RCMP to find out like who sent them. It was the VIP protection office out of Regina. So it was someone through the SAS party or someone through the premier's office that had been watching my social media, probably was aware that I was going to have this phone protest the next day. And they were trying to send a message of, we want you to be silent or we want you to at least be more quiet than what you're being right now. But again, academic freedom. I know that for my job, I'm able to say these things and have some safety and some protection from that. Corey and I've talked on the show a few times in the past on other issues, but um, kind of similar, often on the economic side of things where we seem to have a lot of circumstances where you have economists, and that's that's the field I pay attention to a lot of time, coming out and giving these warnings 
and saying, hey, these are things we need to do to protect ourselves. And the government saying, you're fear mongering, you're being ridiculous. Um, but what I always found really frustrating was a year later, four years later, however many years later it takes for all of those predictions the economists were making to come true. The exact same politicians then come back with the, well, no one could have predicted this. Mm-hmm. Um, on on this front, how I guess how frustrating are you finding some of this? Nobody could nobody could have predicted this type rhetoric that you're hearing from the people who laughed at you or devalued your commentary when you were predicting it. Yeah, I, I really did start to see that it was important for me to put those predictions out there on social media so that they were public, knowing that. When they would say nobody could have predicted this, there would be a public record that I, as not even someone who's employed to do this type of work, really all of the epidemiology stuff that I've, you know, the statistics and stuff like that, I taught myself how to do all of that. So if there are people working in public health who are getting paid to specifically make these predictions, they're probably better at it than I am, or most certainly they're better at it than, than I am. So that means if I can get these things right, they're getting them right, and the government is definitely ignoring those predictions. And not even to say predictions, but really the knowledge, uh, the foresight of what's going to happen. Yeah, it wasn't I'm not sure if I completely answered your question. Yeah, no, that was, that was, yeah, I was, I was interested to hear sort of your perspective on that because I know I like, Again, in similar words, I'm not um, some learned economist. I'm a guy who's worked in banking and finance for a while, so I can see the money stuff as it's happening. But similar where it's like, if I as a semi-layman can see things coming, I know the experts are seeing it coming and the frustration of the after the fact, oh, no one could have seen this coming. I I, I was interested to hear your perspective and, and um, I think your comment about having put it out in the public sphere early and making making it visible and essentially putting your own willingness to put your own reputation somewhat at risk by making the predictions in advance. Because again, if they don't come true, all these people coming for you would be able to point back at them. So I get it. It speaks volumes that you're willing to do that. And I, I think you're right. I think it does uh, come through after the fact when you are able to point back to it. Even if it doesn't change policy going forward, there will be accountability at the end of this pandemic. There will be public inquiries to all of Canada's response and probably the provincial responses. And, you know, they won't be able to keep hiding behind that. Nobody could have known, you know, looking at other countries, looking at other provinces with higher population density, really nothing that happened in Saskatchewan didn't already happen somewhere else first. So we should have had, you know, learning from other people's mistakes. And we really ignored just about all the evidence that, can, you know, we can do it better than they can. We'll be able to, you know, drive to the edge of the cliff and hit the brakes just in time. Whereas every other province and every other country and, you know, all across Europe and India and all the other places, they couldn't do it. But somehow the Saskatchewan government will have exactly the right formula to, you know, balance the economic output along with saving as many lives as possible. And it's just complete, you know, unearned confidence of their own skills. Sask rolling out monoclonal antibody treatment for unvaccinated COVID-19 patients. Uh, This came out on October 25th and said that on November 1st, which is now six days ago, 
uh, unvaccinated people who test positive for COVID-19 can request the treatment. Uh, though in the article, it does mention that uh, this the final say will be up to a clinician. So uh, you can't just go in and get it and demand to get it. This is something that doctors are going to say, yes, this is an eligible person. And this is somebody that uh, actually should get this treatment. Um, and the province said that there are some cases of immunocompromised or immunosuppressed people who could be treated uh, even if they have had their vaccines. So I thought this was a good, good, like little news story, kind of a, uh, yay, we're doing this other thing as well. <laughs> so I think the province wants to take a little more credit for this than they're actually going to have benefit from using these monoclonal therapies. And I think a lot of this comes from the U.S., places like Florida, where they had a low vaccination rate and Governor DeSantis, you know, said, you know, anyone who wants these monoclonal antibodies can get them. And it was a way to try and after the fact, when people are infected, at least keep them alive. And so Saskatchewan had been calling for these monoclonal antibodies. But the big downsides are that you have to initiate the treatment five days or less after your symptoms start. And we know that in Saskatchewan right now, especially in like the rural south and places like that, half of the people showing up in the hospital who are probably two weeks into being symptomatic and being infected, so far beyond actually being able to have any sort of treatment from these monoclonal antibodies, half of them weren't <laughs> tested previously. So of the people who are anti-vax, you know, hardcore, COVID is fake and things like that, by the time they do need this therapy and get to the hospital, the, the window is closed. Mm. So I think that one of the things I actually made a couple of notes, Saskatchewan received 476 doses, were expected to get 1,200. Uh, it was like three days into the treatments and they'd used six doses so far. So <laughs> we're unlikely to use as many doses as we're getting. And you could also expect that these antibodies are the same type of thing that you would get from doing vaccination. So some people who would be anti-vax would probably also be against this treatment as well. And it costs $2,500 per person as opposed to $20 for a vaccine. Right. So uh, I think it's, you know, it's good PR to say we're, we're doing this, but the number of people that will be helped, I think, is quite low. The cost is always, to me, speaks to, like, again, I don't have a... I don't have a science background. I have a money background. So the conspiracy is all about big, quote unquote, big pharma. I always find laughable from a money standpoint because there are treatments like this. Like so often, if if these pharmaceutical companies were as evil as the conspiracy theory theorists say they are, and again, I'm not a big pro mega corporation person uh, that is also not a very left-wing philosophy but um, if they were as truly evil as the conspiracy theorists said they were it's in their best interest to have people not vaccinated because they make way more money off of all of these other um, treatments treatment is way more profitable than prevention um, and I, I it was funny recently some uh, post social media posts I made 12 years ago sort of came up through my memories. Um, and again, talking in 2009 about how pharmaceutical companies made billions off or mil hundreds of millions, at least off of things like Tamiflu during the H1N1. 
and everyone was freaking out about vaccines 12 years ago when it was the vaccines they're making pennies per dose tamiflu they're making hundreds of dollars per dose and again this new treatment the monoclonal treatment same thing it's the money is not in vaccinating the they're not (laughs) raking in the billions off of twenty dollar vaccines it's thousand dollar treatments where they where they make the money so again i just from a looking at the conspiracy against it, it, it but just, that's why they got to get you the booster shot every six months David. right because <laughs> the 37 cents up, of right? profit that they make off of that is going to be what the throne speech goes on despite protest outside legislative building um the second session of saskatchewan's 29th legislature started wednesday with Differing priorities for the government and the opposition. Uh, Yeah, so I don't know how exciting the actual throne speech was, but there was two protests going on outside. One was an anti-homeless or anti-poverty, pro like anti-houselessness. Yeah, that sounds right. (laughs) Protest. And the other one was uh, people against COVID-19 vaccine and public health orders. And they actually, uh, there was some threats uh, and... uh, uh, the government decided to cancel the part of the pro- uh, throne speech that was going to be outside. Yeah, I don't. I, I, don't well, I find the headline a little weird that you know the throne speech goes on despite protests. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. again, I'm no big fan of Scott Moe, but like, of course it does. Like that. <laughs> like, yeah. We have to have throne speeches. Like, we are a parliamentary democracy. There are certain procedural things that have to happen. Um, yeah, I, there are often protests at throne speeches across the country in Ottawa at various provincial capitals. It's just a weird headline. Um, the fact that there were protests um, to different ones that needed to be separated from each other is, you know, speaks, I think, speaks to the state of the province right now. But the fact that the throne speech occurred, it seems like a weird thing to make a headline about. It was just news that they had to cancel any of that outside stuff. And while the government was sort of obtuse about which protest it was, the (laughs) SIS protest for the Saskatchewan income support, the homelessness, that happened a couple hours previously, and they were not on the legislature grounds at the time. And it was the anti-COVID restrictions group that were yelling and screaming right up to the steps. and. Uh, who was the MLA who was disgraced and kicked out of caucus? Nadine Wilson. Yeah. She went out and greeted them and, you know, took pictures and did handshakes and things like that. So definitely, you know, the agenda that might have been threatening or the people who might have been threatening were the people who were against the COVID restrictions. But they didn't want to say it explicitly because there were two protests and maybe, you know, it was both sides. And yeah. maybe it was the people who were fighting for homeless people. Yeah, <laughs> we can uh, quickly go through this uh, one article on the anti-poverty protest because this is, I think, uh, more important. I mean, I guess not more important. The anti-COVID restriction one is frustrating, and it's part of our province. But this uh, anti-poverty protest was uh, discussing the new kind of new rules around. Uh, um, uh, how uh, social assistance is distributed because uh, people, the money used to go to landlords directly and now people are getting it in their checks, but they're not getting enough to cover their rent. And then they're left with 
like they're saying $285 per month for non-shelter needs. And uh, the average rent in Saskatchewan is, uh, well, no, the affordable rent is $650 to $668 and people are getting $459 or $575. So they're just not getting enough to get shelter or cover any of their other basic needs. So that's frustrating, but... I think that the, the income support system that they had before where it goes directly to the landlord, you know, I don't know why they did away with that. I heard that Paul Merriman was actually the cabinet minister leading that group when the changes were made and then he moved on to health. So, you know, if there's someone to blame, I guess, <laughs> you know, who was in charge at the time. But the, the new SIS program, because they're giving money directly to people, that's going to affect the most vulnerable, the people who have addictions or things like that, because if you give them money, they might spend it on other things. Whereas if you provide it as shelter, then they're going to have that guarantee. They aren't going to be freezing to death as winter comes. And I think that it's really this sort of instance of, you know, universal basic services versus universal basic income where you're saying, you know, it's not enough just to give people money, but we also need to make sure that they get the things that they need because, not everyone is going to be fiscally responsible. And I mean, not even people who are upper class are fiscally responsible. Like there's always some level of fiscal responsibility. And especially when it's people who might be losing the place that they can sleep at night that's warm, we should be making sure that they are having absolute security in where they're staying. Yeah. I think another piece of it as well is, um, is I, I tend to, lean in the direction of, especially when you're dealing with people who are within marginalized communities, um, assuming that they know how to spend their money better than others um, because they know where their priorities are and how to stretch their dollar probably a lot better. Um, the problem comes in is when you switch it to a cash going directly into their hands, that's when the red tape starts getting thicker. Um, and the amounts start getting smaller because when money is going directly to the housing itself, it costs what it costs, right? Like you have, the government has to pay the landlord what the landlord is charging. That is a, an amount that is known. As soon as you put it in the hands of the person who is paying the rent, all of a sudden you start having, oh, well, why do they need to spend 650? Why aren't they just get, why don't they just go find a place for 500 a month? Why don't they just, why don't they just? And it, you tend to see a shrinking of the money. You tend to see, okay, well, I want to make sure that people are doing drug tests in order to get this money or doing this hoop to jump through, this yeah. paperwork to fill out. Um, and it just starts adding more and more bureaucracy in the way of getting people the resources they need. Um, and again, we've talked before, if you're, I also don't want money going directly to a landlord because I would much rather it be a housing first initiative where we have social housing that is, you know, available. We, we yeah, know that decommodified. People, yeah. And we know if people have shelter, they will be able to have the tools necessary to start solving a lot of those other problems. Because um, when you have community, when you have your basic needs met, then you can better fight addictions. Then you can better get yourself in a spot where you can apply for work or get the mental health treatment you need to become productive, et cetera, et cetera. So 
Yeah, it's just, uh, it would sure be nice if they could just, you know, give people places to live. I think the next story yeah, is says in the article, there's 300 social housing units that currently sit vacant right, while people right. are living in this tent city. So, yeah. yeah, I don't understand what the priorities are there. Like, <laughs> yeah, on October 26th, this article came out uh, about a resident of Camp Marjorie, which is the current tent uh, community in Regina and Pepsi Park. And uh, yeah, it's. It's sad uh, that somebody overdosed there and that they're even having to sleep there. I know that there's been lots of calls on uh, Twitter and other social media for people to uh, bring them blankets, bring them sweaters, bring them anything that will keep them warm uh, through the freezing nights. I don't know what else to say, really. It's, uh, yeah. It's great that the community is banding together and, you know, I've, I've seen them say, you know, we have enough food right now. We're going to be passing okay, things yeah, on yeah. to some other group and things like that. But in Canada, you shouldn't have to rely upon charity for survival. It should be something where yeah, we say yeah. as a entire country, as a society, we believe people shouldn't be falling through the cracks and it shouldn't be our generosity. It should be this is just what we do. Yeah, and yeah. that means the government should be the one who's actually taking care of this. Yeah, it would be nice to see something done, like you say, like uh, with 300 vacant social housing <laughs> units. Um, this seems like a no-brainer to me. Yeah, no, it, it's um, – there was a quote and I was, was trying to find who said it. And I guess by virtue of it being a podcast, maybe we can find who actually said it originally. But um, there, there was a quote that always sticks in my head, um, charity is evidence of a failed government. Um it, it's we sh charity tends to be unevenly distributed by sheer virtue of the fact that it has to be it tends to be patchwork um it doesn't have the ability to remain consistent over a long period of time um and in a, it is we're seeing that here as well in that charity is people's charity is doing good work to be a band-aid to keep people alive it's not something that shouldn't happen um but again it's it's treating things after the fact rather than the prevention that needs to be done in advance um and there's no reason in a country as wealthy as canada that we're not and province as wealthy as saskatchewan we are not having the resources in place to be addressing this in advance sort of from that quote charity they have become then a popularity contest they have to compete with other charities and you know the fuzzy pets or the children might get more funding compared to adults living in the streets and the money isn't going where it's most needed it's going where people you know feel the most for that cause and want to give to that which Again, yeah, it isn't very efficient because if the government could oversee it and say, here's where the holes are, here's where we actually need to be filling in more services, putting more funding in, then we make sure that it's equitable, right? We make sure that we are trying to get as much done for the money that we're spending. And I think some of it comes down to that myth um, that uh, government is inefficient. And we've talked about that a lot. And like, there, there are certainly times where, you know, I was just saying a moment ago how when it comes to marginalized communities, I'd rather have the money in the hands of the the person who's making decisions about their own life. Um, however, when dealing with large projects, governments 
for the most part, do fairly well. Um, they are good at managing infrastructure. Um, governments historically have been good at managing social programs when there is a will behind them. It's just a matter of ensuring that, again, there's the will behind it. I'm a broken record um, on this, but we know this is one of those clear black and white areas where the return on investment of addressing homelessness at the point at which you provide housing is cost effective. It, it Every dollar you spend on providing housing for people who don't have it um, saves you as a taxpayer, as a government, as a society, however you want to view whoever ends up footing the bill later down the road many times over um, because you're not having to pay as much for health care and um, all these other uh, secondary effects. You don't need policing as much. Um, and that's its own issue as well. But it's so frustrating because it's one of those situations where the moral choice and the fiscally responsible choice are the same choice. It's not like you're having to, okay, do we want to save money or do we want to do the right thing? It's like, do you want to save money and do the right thing or waste money and let people die? Like those shouldn't be a tough choice. That shouldn't be difficult. That, that should just be easy. And it, is so incredibly frustrating that for some reason it can't be. We are in the Toronto star. <laughs> it's the big time. Uh, Saskatchewan premier Scott Moe, unsure when canceled health ser care services are going to resume. This is paired with another article uh, talking about uh, bringing back a, a kind of privatization for surgeries. Uh, but Scott Moe is not sure when, uh, Hundreds of healthcare services that have been canceled will come back, which I think is kind of related to what we were talking about before we got into the news articles is that this was all predictable. We knew we would get overwhelmed if we had major uh, cases, case numbers of COVID, and then this stuff has to get postponed and uh, much of it was already postponed and uh, staff is already overworked. So yeah. I don't, who knows when they're going to catch up? We never, <laughs> hopefully not. But I think that, you know, we knew from the very start of the pandemic about flattening the curve and saw what happened in Italy and saw what happened in New York and knew that, you know, the health care system could be completely overloaded. And we saw it happen in our third wave where we had to shut things down and we saw it happening in Alberta in August. And there's really no excuse by now to say we didn't see this coming. And because of that, and because the SAS party has a history of trying to slowly privatize healthcare, it becomes at least a feasible theory that some of this may have been intentional in that weakening our healthcare system might have been to them a little bit of a bonus that comes out of allowing some more cases to proceed because then you can start to put in more private MRIs and knee surgeries and things like that. But it's gone way too far beyond that with 35,000 surgeries that have been canceled. And I think that they said that when they did have that system running, it took four years for them to catch up on 11,000 surgeries. So even if we were using that program where people can pay for a surgery, 
Yeah. At the rate that it was before, it could take over a decade for us to start to clear out that backlog. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have... I don't have an alternative uh, theory for what would solve the problem, but I know that privatization doesn't seem to be the way to go. Is privatization, like, it always gets billed as this miracle cure because it's going to exist in addition to an unimpacted public health system. Um, that we'll spend, we will continue to spend just as much money on a public health system and also then have all of this private stuff going on side by side. Right. And I don't know of a single time in history where that's been true for anything, whether it's education, whether it's healthcare, like every single time you see something start to get privatized, like as sure as rain falls from the sky instead of up from the ground, you will hear a conservative three years later saying, oh, well, since I'm paying for my own private healthcare, I shouldn't have to pay as much towards the public health care. Um, yeah. Or since I have my kid in private school, I should have my taxes go to that private school rather than the public system. Like yeah. every time it is, it is as predictable as clockwork. Um, and the, I guarantee you, you will find the same thing happens with this. If we, if we go back to you know, flirting with privatization of our healthcare system. It's funny because I, I talk to uh, the odd conservative person. I live in Saskatchewan. Um, <laughs> and like the majority of them will say to me, there is zero chance that we're going to go. We don't actually, the conservative movement doesn't want to eliminate uh, public health care. They don't, they, we don't want to do that. We just want to be able to pay for our services as well as have public health care. And then you see stuff like this, and it seems so clearly designed to phase out public health care in favor of private health insurance and private service. I don't know. It just seems like maybe the leadership and the voters are not in tune in this, or maybe people are being in denial for themselves of what is in front of our faces, but I don't know. I've talked about, like, this is... Saskatchewan rather than federal, but I've talked about that 905 effect where you have that soft conservative or soft liberal sort of that's that centrist population that conservatives need to be very, very cautious when wooing um, because they it is a portion of the population that is very eager to vote conservative when they think they can have a clean conscience when doing conscience when doing so. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what you have on this topic as well. They, you know, they have to continue saying we don't plan on privatizing healthcare, um, and like at this point. And then once you have the the wedge in the door, then you can start saying, oh, "Okay, well, I don't want to privatize healthcare, but I shouldn't have to pay for public healthcare because I'm not using it." Right, right. And I, to be fair, I do know a number of people who are considered who consider themselves conservatives who are currently against this move in particular. So Good. well, and bring it to COVID. I, for the first time started to hear uh, just about a week and a half ago, started to hear the anti-vaxxers talking about how they shouldn't have to pay into public health care since they don't <laughs> believe in it. Yes. I saw some of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> if we don't get public services, why are we paying taxes? Because that's not how this works. Yeah. <laughs> Especially as you're choosing not to get society. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> if you want to be part of society, you have to pay into society. Yeah. You can't have all of the benefits of roads and people doing all the jobs that you don't want to do and police and yeah. ambulances and all of that stuff and say, but I want to be able to pick and choose which parts I'm not paying for. Yeah. You know, it's, it can't happen. Yeah. Saskatchewan government to look into creating provincial police force for the second time. Uh, the first one operated from 1917 to 1928. Uh, obviously, I'm uh, I'm an anarchist. I believe in decentralization, but this isn't what I mean. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't mean we should have our own police force. <laughs> so uh, the, the Saskatchewan government's throne speech, the province voiced its intention to look into a, creating a provincial police force, uh, though. Christine Tell, the province's Minister of Corrections, Policing and Public Safety, said that there are no plans for a review or study into the costs and effectiveness of having a provincial police force. So on one hand, they're saying, yes, we're looking into, we're thinking about this. And on the other hand, they aren't doing anything to make it happen yet. What they're saying is they're looking into the politics of it first. And once they've done that, <laughs> then they're going to look into whether it's I'm actually I'm doing effective. an exploratory committee. Yeah. <laughs> It, it, just, it, it speaks to the priorities, right? They're not concerned about how whether it's cost effective. They're not concerned about whether it is going to have a positive impact. They're doing research on whether it's going to help them in the polls. Which, to, to be fair, that like that is what happens in democracies. Like you want to be looking into what the people want, but um, it, it's very much an, an emotion based research rather than fact based <laughs> research. <laughs> yeah. For some reason, uh, like, yes, you're a hundred percent right. Uh, in democracy, you want to do what the majority of the people want to do, but that's not, that seems different than doing it to look into like whether or not it will pull well with your already, the supporters you already have. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's not as different as it seems to me. <laughs> I think the people that this appeals to are the Wexit type people who are about, you know, Western sovereignty and we're not going to let Ottawa tell us what to do because Alberta is a few steps ahead of Saskatchewan in exploring, creating their own police force. Yes. And, you know, the number said, you know, it's going to cost them hundreds of millions of dollars to transition over and it's going to cost them a couple hundred million more to, I guess, per year because they have to make up for what the federal government wouldn't be sort of kicking in as their part of the RCMP. So it is not going to be a cost saving thing. It's really about now they're ours and we can tell them what to do and we can determine how they're trained and we can, you know, figure out wh what they're going to actually be policing and, you know, maybe cater to specific groups who want that and they want to make sure they aren't losing those votes. Because yeah. right now that would be losing the votes to the right, to the PPC, the Buffalo Party, the Maverick Party, Wild Rose, whatever, you know, all of those sort of further right parties were. <laughs> it, you have you have a certain portion of the population. And you, I think you see it more strongly in the U.S. than than here. But you have a certain portion of the population that identifies very very strongly as pro police, mm -hmm. but hates the national police force. Um, because if you if you all of the Blue Lives Matter folks that I've ever met that are from the U.S. hate the FBI with a passion. Like they don't count as cops in their minds. They don't count as part of the the blue whatever. Um, and I think you, you see a little bit of that in Canada, especially here in Saskatchewan and Alberta with regards to the RCMP. And I think you're going to see that become more and more the case um, in the coming years, especially if the RCMP actually 
work towards reforms. But don't get me wrong, I'm not holding my breath that they are going to work <laughs> towards the reforms that I would like to see. Um, but yeah. as they at least start paying lip service towards those reforms, I think you're going to see a lot of people like a lot of the Blue Lives Matter folks like them less and less. Because it's about racism, not about policing. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Like that's the, that's the quiet part out loud for sure. <laughs> yeah. COVID vaccine passports uh, improved Saskatchewan vaccination rate, according to a study. Um, so, yeah, more people, when they were told they needed a proof of vaccination, went out and got vaccinated. Yep. And we so, always knew that this was going to happen because other places had put in vaccine passports, Israel, Europe, things like that. And they saw their vaccination rates go up. And we'd been calling for it. You know, Rough Riders games should have vaccine passports, you know, concerts, like the biggest things and then sort of narrowing it down. And the government was just, no, we don't want to have them. Finally, they did, I think, because they realized that we aren't going to vaccinate ourselves out of this problem. And because I track all the statistics and things like that, I can, I've got, I've got essentially a formula that tells me each day how many vaccinations we've done for the seven day average over and above what our low point was in mid August. Okay. And okay. From the time that the university, U of S, U of R, all of them sort of put in their vaccine mandates, the riders, and then the Saskatchewan government, we've had 58,000 more first doses, and we've had 92,000 more doses of vaccination given out than if we had plateaued at that rate, and the rate was going down. So it's certain that there's been 100,000 more doses given out than what would have happened if we had no vaccine. That's huge. Yeah. So, Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a pretty big deal considering, uh, how many cases of COVID that probably prevented or how many severe cases that probably prevented hundreds of lives likely saved because of that. Yeah. And again, this is me being a bit jaded and, and obviously my bias comes in on this, but like it speaks to how, how actually firmly held the beliefs about the vaccine were, mm. because if I, honestly thought that this vaccine would put my children at risk not being able to go into the liquor store wouldn't make me get it like that's like that is just cut and dry like if i honestly thought this vaccine could could harm my children or harm me yeah like i i would i would not <laughs> I, I would not get it even with needing passports and like i think the the proof of that is like when COVID was the risk, which I did think COVID was a risk, I didn't go to those places. Um, yeah. And we're, and we saw lots of people not take risks about going to the liquor store, going out to places, even when they were open, because they knew that there was a risk involved with COVID. Um, and don't get me wrong. I am glad there are anti-vaxxers who are now saying, uh, you know, the, the inconvenience of not having it outweighs my fear of getting it. Um, but it, it does sort of make me very cynical about how firmly they actually believed that the vaccine put them at risk. It, it was a segment of the population who they weren't fervently anti-vax, but they were just, if there's a slight risk of me getting vaccinated or if, everyone else gets vaccinated and they protect me, there's no risk to me, 
I'll just sit on the sidelines and wait for them to reach herd immunity and then I'm safe. And when we obviously weren't reaching that point, it was, no, we need you to take part as well. You can't fly. You can't cross the border. Like there were things that these people want to be able to do. It's not just simple things like the liquor store, but you know, you're not going to be able to go to Las Vegas or you're not going to be able to go to Cancun or wherever it might be. You know, those become significant things or you're not going to be able to go out for dinner for your anniversary. Like that's not just that, you know, yeah, I could send someone into the store with me or I could, you know, get whatever delivery service to give me those things. Like there are some places where you can sort of, hit people's freedoms that are luxurious freedoms, right? They're not the things that they're required to have, but they're like, you want to play along with society, you know, you need to pull a bit of your weight. Yeah. At my workplace, um, it was the statement by our boss actually that said like, everybody in this workplace has to have their vaccines. And uh, some of the people, they tried to hold out a little bit. They said, no, we're not getting it. But when our employer held firm, then they started going out and getting their first dose. And so I guess when you put your livelihood on, on the one side and the risk of vaccine on the other side, I guess where, where, if you are a true believer, even where do you draw that line? I guess. And we're seeing places with like where the employer is requiring it. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't know what the statistical, this is, this is anecdotal. Um, but it seems every story I'm hearing where employers have put it on the line and there is fear mongering about, Oh, hundreds of thousands of people are going to quit or you're going to lose 20% of your workforce. It's like of our 10,000 employees, 17 are quitting. Like it, it's, it has fairly consistently been quite small numbers that yeah. actually will hold out when, when push comes to push comes to shove. I think the NYPD was supposed to be losing thousands and thousands of people who weren't yeah. going to take it. And there was like 68 that, you know, refused to get the <laughs> yeah, vaccination. Yeah. And, and I think Chicago was the one I had, I had heard the Chicago police force was the one I heard 17 people. Um, so like not quite as big as NYPD, but still a massive police force that 17 people quit. And again, I'm, they're, not- they're probably the 17 I would want to quit, but. That's a it's interesting when people are like, you know, this is so coercive and you're forcing people. It's like, what of all the rules we have in society isn't coercion <laughs> to get people to do things like yeah. speed yeah. limits are coercive because you don't want to pay to get the penalty or lose your car and things like that. Like, yes, you could do whatever you wanted, but there's penalties involved. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know. My, my daughter, who's 16 now, I think when she was seven or eight, was like, you know, you can't tell me what to do. I'm the one who controls my body. And I had to give her this big talk of, yes, you can do whatever you want, but people won't do things for you unless you actually do things for them and cooperate because that's the way society works. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. unfortunate that there are adults who still haven't learned those lessons that you do need to not just take from the community, but you need to serve the community as well. Yeah. Well, and again, we, that could lead to a very large discussion about, uh, the cult, uh, and propaganda of individualism that we've been fed for so many years. (laughs) Like, uh, people have really come to think of them, each person as an island. And we just happen to be in a society, in a community where other islands are nearby. (laughs) And I'll be the first one to say, like, you know, we do need to be careful when we are, dealing with the coercive power of the state like yep. that that's a that is an issue um and i don't think it's unreasonable to say you know we need to have a 
we need to have fairly clear evidence that if the state is going to use its coercive power um, to um, push people towards doing things, there needs to be a clear benefit. Yeah. Um, but that threshold's been met. Like, <laughs> just like the threshold is met, was met for seatbelts 30 years ago. Banning um, smoking in public places. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> It's not like there isn't a line that can be drawn. Sometimes it's tricky to find exactly where that line is, and we need to be careful of not letting that line drift too far one way or another. But it's it's this ridiculousness that there shouldn't be a line at all yeah. that just baffles me, because there is. No matter how politically libertarian someone may be, even then, like there's always a line that, people think should be there. Um, and then we can have an honest discussion about where the line should be. Um, but until people are acknowledging that there needs to be a line somewhere, an honest discussion can't really happen. Warning press progress article ahead. (laughs) (laughs) The Fox news of the left. Yeah. 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 Our right wing listeners, all, all one of them won't agree with (laughs) or like this article. Um, but, up to yeah. 300,000 yeah. in Saskatchewan party donations may be tied to Rolco radio owners. I don't know if anybody's actually surprised by this, but uh, since 2006, the Rawlinson family, uh, one uh, headed by the CEO of Rolco radio, one of Saskatchewan's largest private broadcasters has been connected to about 300,000 in corporate donations to the governing Saskatchewan party. Which again, like I, I make the joke about them being the, the Fox news of the left. And like, this is one of those stories that like kind of fits that bill. A little um, bit. Yeah. There's, there's 20, some... 20,000 a year is what that works out to. Yeah. Um, which like, again, it's still important to know. And it's maybe tied like there's. <laughs> yeah. There, they do seem to be uh, drawing some connections that I don't know if they provide enough evidence to yeah. uh, justify all of them. But yeah, but I think the one fact that I got from this was that Saskatchewan's the only province that allows unlimited corporate yes, donations. Yes, and yeah. you know, <laughs> if, if we fixed that loophole, we wouldn't have to worry about any yes. company, whether it's an oil company or whether it's a union or whatever it might be trying to really unfairly influence the government or perhaps less than ethically influence the government by providing them with a certain amount of donations. And Let's just fix that instead of having to worry about this one business owner, because you're, you're never going to be able to fix the problem if you're just chasing down those individuals, right? Yeah. We saw something similar, I think, right after the provincial election when uh, there was uh, donors from outside of the province uh, who ran oil companies and had donated to uh, the SAS party election or campaign. We uh, We covered it then because... It was an out-of-province person. So then you're looking at, well, where do we draw the rules on this stuff? And like you say, like maybe there should be a limit on uh, campaign donations. Maybe campaigning in the way that we currently do it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. The, the Sask Party, like I don't think anyone who, who listens to Rolco Radio's news talk stations um, – will be in any way, shape, or form shocked no. that the, the Sask Party and Relco Radio are 
wings of one movement, right? Like it's yeah. One is the political wing, and one is the media wing. They are they are very much in bed. Like yeah, we we've talked about John Gormley a couple times. I don't want to necessarily give him more uh, <laughs> more name credit <laughs> than he deserves, yeah. but like the the conservative movement in this province is as led by John Gormley as it is by Scott Moe. Um, maybe it was a little different when Brad Wall was around because he was much more charismatic than Moe, but I, I would wager that the, the, the bulk of Sask party voters in this province, if there was an issue where Scott Moe said one thing and John Gormley said another, they would be following Gormley over Moe. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and we, we see it with some of this COVID stuff, right? Wow. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we've, we've seen Gormley go the opposite, well, not the opposite, but in a different direction than the government uh, on occasion. And what do you see uh, in your day-to-day existence, I guess, is what, what the result of the Gormley listeners. <laughs> and right. it might be that sometimes there is a distance between what the government and the conservative talking heads are advocating for because they're trying to cover both bases and maybe test to see which one is more popular. Yeah. Yep. I could see that. The article, um, again, from, from press progress, uh, one, it talks about the money piece of it, but the sheer media exposure piece of it was, I thought pretty, um, like pretty yeah, like, enlightening as well. Like the, it, it, and I think we all know it. Like anyone who pays any attention to talk radio in the province gets a feel for it anyways, but just the sheer volume of free media that the SAS party gets from Rolko is, yeah. is pretty astounding. It, it, like there was, they there run was... campaign ads, but call them <laughs> interviews. Yeah. the, the weekly Brad Wall segment or whatever it was yeah. that he had, like uh, obviously Scott Moe doesn't get necessarily the same treatment, but yeah, like Brad Wall was on Gormley's show every week and Pat Fiacco was too, back when he was Regina's mayor. Yeah. He definitely picks his people and gives them as much coverage as they can yeah. get. Now the government avoids doing interviews with more centrist places like, I think uh, a week or two ago, Mo gave an interview with yeah, CBC yeah. for Stephanie Langenanger, and she just grilled him on, you know, are you going to apologize for the overloaded ICUs and all that? And it was her first or CBC's first interview with them with Mo in four months or something like that. And they kept getting, you know, he's not available. He's not available. He's not available. But he'd given, you know, handfuls of interviews and, you know, time for John Gormley and places like that. And it's it's obvious that he's playing favorites and he's playing to his base, his listeners, and avoiding the tough questions and the accountability that comes from a truly independent press. Yeah, I think uh, that one we we didn't talk about that last time because I but I, I think it got bumped that story. But he really shit the bed on that interview. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was it was amazing, and I think everybody who uh, in Saskatchewan should listen to it. I still to this day. And baffled by Scott Moe being the pick to run that party. Like you could literally pick anyone and they would have won. Like the leader really did not matter these last couple of elections. So um, why pick him? <laughs> but like, man, like it's almost like they're, yeah. Like 
went out of their way to pick the worst possible leader of all of the choices they had. Uh, like, and don't get me wrong, I'm not fans of the other ones. Like, my politics do not align with the other people who ran. But right. surely from a real politic, cold-hearted, just treating politics like a game rather than something that impacts lives, if you, like, just plain looking at who to pick as leader – he was a really bad choice. He has no charisma. Um, he has a lot of skeletons in the closet um, and does not think fast on his feet. Like, it's just the weirdest choice. And I, 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 I don't know of all the things that I can sort of wrap my head around when it comes to conservatives and put my, you know, put myself in their shoes and try and think, okay, you know, if this was my moral framework, I could understand how getting from X to Y to Z, as far as my thought process, I can, I can work my way through it. Why they pick Scott Moe will always be the one that's a mystery for me. (laughs) Uh, Sask was warned in June of high likelihood of fall COVID-19 surge, according to internal documents. And the model suggested masking could curb case counts. Ah, yeah. So, but they didn't do anything. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's, yeah, I don't know. uh, This surprises nobody, but thank goodness for Zach Viscara, who's the the reporter on this, who filed the Freedom of Information Act requests, who got the confidential, not for public, you know, sort of showing models, because now there is evidence they yeah. can't hide behind, oh, we didn't really know, our models weren't good. The models showed almost exactly what the rises in ICU numbers were going to be going into August, September, October. So you know, a decision was made at some point to allow a certain number of cases and hospitalizations because of politics, economics, whoever it might have been, but it wasn't putting public health first. It wasn't prioritizing the people of Saskatchewan and keeping them alive and keeping kids from getting infected and things like that. And, you know, they won't be able to hide behind that any longer. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and it, I feel somewhat like using such a flippant example for something that's this serious and, and life threatening, but I, I still always have the image in my head of Captain Renault from Casablanca, where he's like, I'm shocked, shocked to have found gambling in this establishment. Here's your winnings, sir. And it's like, it's, it's this, like it, the same thing. like this Sasquatch, I'm, we're shocked, shocked to that. This is what happened. Here's the report that we told you this was going to happen. Right. Like it, it's this yeah. fake surprise. And I don't know whether it is malice on they, – they, they saw the report, they believed the report, and they decided that it was worth the risk anyways, or whether it was incompetence of they saw the report, chose to disbelieve the report because they knew better than the experts um, and, and decided to just ignore it, or somewhere in between where there was that sort of malice and, and ignorance sort of overlapping where yeah you know we're just gonna ignore what the scientists are telling us and even if they are true then it's no big deal but i do get like if i was scott mo if i was a conservative and i was trying to put any policies in place 
there is a pressure to make it so apparent that things are going to go bad before you're going to be able to convince your voters that, yes, we absolutely do need masks now or we need to have gathering restrictions or whatever it might be. Because if you did all that proactively, it's your head that they would want, right? Because they are against all of those things. So where is that balance found? And I think that because they've always been so delayed in putting things in, they've allowed the expectations to get lower and lower for what the interventions are going to be. If they had started, you know, last July when other places were putting in masks and last October putting in, you know, bar restrictions and things like that, and they'd always been a little bit ahead, then things wouldn't have gotten so bad. And they'd be able to say, look at all the things that we've done have always been really effective. But they kind of let, you know, the cart get before the horse or whatever you want to sort of put it. But I I was thinking the, there's the... um the expression only Nixon can go to China. Um, this idea that like to some degree, Mo had all the cards stacked in his favor um, because had he done all of the recommendations that experts were telling him, had he put masking in early, had, you know, vaccine mandates, had um, greater restrictions on, on public establishments opening, like had he done all of those things, who are the people who are angry at him going to vote for? Like they're not going to vote NDP. And realistically, the Buffalo party is, is a long way away from being relevant. Um, the only, like we think about the Buffalo party. Okay. Maybe they're going to go down the same path that the reform party did. So we shouldn't, you know, view them as a threat, like, or discount them as a threat. But we sometimes forget that the reform party had conservative MPs, essentially crossed the floor to join it, right? Like it, it wasn't as if it sprung whole cloth from nothing. It's you had a conservative party fracture into three pieces. Um, a third go to the block, a third go to stay with the conservatives and a third go to reform, not an even split, but like there was a, a framework there and a, a, uh, an apparatus in place that shifted very quickly over into this reform party, the Buffalo party isn't going to get that. The Sask party as for all, for all their buffoonery in so many areas, they are not bad enough at politics to fracture their party in half and allow it to reach a point where a dozen MPs go and join the Buffalo party. So Mo could have been as freaking left wing as he wanted on. I, I shouldn't even think of, listen to scientists on science and listen to doctors on healthcare as a left-wing thing. It's like, oh, I, I went to my cardiologist and he gave me these meds for my heart condition, but I'm true conservative, so I'm not going to take them. Like, that shouldn't be how we think. But Mo could have been as pro-science as, as any left-wing premier in this country. And the SAS party voters would not have had anywhere else to go. Yeah. Um, and we had an election a year ago. Like he had four years to make them forget if he did. Right. And there would have been some who were pissed off about, you know, restaurants closing and having to wear a mask and vaccine passports and all of that. But those are things you're going to forget in three years. I don't think people are going to forget about thousands of deaths. I hope not. Anyways, I hope we, we don't discount that or disrespect those who did die enough that they'll be forgotten. 
we could have followed Doug Ford, like when yeah. he put stuff yeah. in and been like, okay, conservatives are doing this. We can do this now. Right. But instead right. Ford did stuff. And then months later, Kenny did stuff. And then a month later, we do it finally, <laughs> but it's always watered down a bit because, you know, Alberta really put in, in early September, the same restrictions they had last December. And that's why their fourth wave cratered is because they took things seriously. They put in a work from home order. They put in masking. They put in the vaccine mandates, but they called it some other name because they didn't want to have it. But essentially, restaurants have limited capacity unless they check for proof of vaccination. So they sort of, you know, got it in through the back door. But we could have been, okay, we're going to follow Alberta's lead. Instead, masking and vaccine mandates, QR codes, that's all we're going to do. And it, there's really no good explanation for why we did less. And Doug Ford isn't exactly a centrist, let alone a lefty, right? Like his, him at his core is just as right wing as Kenny or Mo is. And so Scott Moe receives appeal, a seal of approval from party members at convention and a leadership review. So he got what they're saying. Mo received 80% plus almost 20% of the vote, according to James Thorsteinson president of the Saskatchewan party. Uh, so almost a hundred percent of the people in the SAS party who would go to this vote, uh, or would participate in the vote are happy with Scott Moe as the leader, which I guess, as we've said already is baffling. <laughs> yeah. Like this one isn't as baffling, like picking him in the first place is baffling these are rubber stamps. Like when someone is yeah, like, they're not going to change leaders in the middle of a uh, term, right? Yeah. Like opposition parties do sometimes, especially after a bad loss. Yep. Um, like, but he's honestly, actually the premier. So yeah. It's, yeah, like he won, he won big. The And like we talk about your base, like at party conventions that are like sort of mid term party can like, this is not just your base. This is like, the base of your base of your base, right? Like yeah. this is, these are party insiders who are willing to travel from across the province to go to a convention that is not going to actually determine anything. Yeah. So. Uh, there was a protest. <laughs> go ahead. I think that conservatives are always very good at, if they have internal conflict, not allowing that to sort of become public. You know, thinking about, Donald Trump and just all of the people who stuck with him through everything, mm -hmm. you know, and less so in Canada. But I think that, you know, everyone supported O'Toole until the election was lost. And then suddenly, you know, some of the knives come out. And I think that even if there were people, party insiders who wanted to replace Scott Moe, they wouldn't let us know with this vote. There would be some kind of arrangement of you're going to retire, you're going to go, you know, work for some think tank in Calgary, whatever it might be for Brad Wall. But we are not going to show any weakness in the party because we all agree that the strength of the party is sort of paramount to any interpersonal kind of leadership issues. Right. Yeah, that's Whereas the left that likes yeah. to rip each other apart. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. Ronald Reagan's 11th commandment, right? It's, it's all about conservatives staying together. Although Miley like did quite well on his uh, convention as well. Like um, for a leader who lost and then quite frankly lost as badly as he did. Um, Miley certainly also performed quite well. I think he 
had around 72% support, which for a losing leader is, is, is quite strong. So. And I think the party's starting to get a little bit of that understanding of we need to show some of that external solidarity because we don't need to do, the NDP doesn't need to do the SAS party's job, right? right. They don't right. need to show how ineffective the party is so that the SAS party can just point and say, look how they're, you know, kicking out their leader again for the sixth time in a decade or whatever it might have been. I, I know there have been a lot of sort of revolving door leaders for the NDP. Many of whom I cannot even tell apart from each other, to be honest. <laughs> well, uh, okay, so th that's going to be it for this evening. Uh, thank you, Kyle, for joining us. Um, where can people find more information from you or more content from you? The biggest thing would be Twitter. So D-R-K-Y-L-E, Dr. Kyle. And people sometimes ask, like, do you expect people to call you Dr. Kyle or anything like that? I signed up with Twitter for that because I wanted a really short username and it's because I had used that username for another service back when I was completing my PhD. So it was just like, oh, it's nice and short. And it was probably February this year when I realized people had been calling me Dr. Kyle. And I was like, <laughs> what? Yeah. Like, I never expected that that would be. And I was like, like Dr. Phil, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. About a month ago, I was talking to someone. And I was like, hey, if you're looking for information, like a friend of mine, you know, Dr. Anderson has uh, up in Saskatchewan. And I started to like explain who you were. And they looked at me as if I had like sprouted like wings out of my eyeballs. They're like, yes, I know who Dr. Kyle is. I'm like, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah. And it's been an interesting time to become publicly known because I've never gone out without a mask since last summer. Like, you know, even when they cut down the mandate because I knew that I had a couple unvaccinated kids at home. So yeah. I'm at the grocery store, I've got a mask on. So I think I've only been recognized by my pharmacist who knew who I was by name. But other than that, you know. <laughs> yeah. You can find us at anchor.fm slash from many peoples. Our Twitter is at escapepoliticspod. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash from many people's strength pod. Uh, we accept emails if you actually deign to send one uh, from many peoples at gmail.com. And if you want to support the show, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash from many peoples. Uh, thank you again for joining us this evening, Kyle. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been fun. Thank you, David, for joining me. Well, thanks for organizing things as usual, Corey, and all the tech magic that you make happen. <laughs> Yeah, no problem. Thanks to everybody who listens and watches. Mm -hmm.